Well, in my household, we love good stories. You know, we, we, we love those gripping messages that you can just kind of grab onto, whether it's reading a good book or whether it's watching a fairy tale movie. We love good stories. And, and that only grew as we had kids. Many of you who have young kids, you know, kids love stories. And often, young kids, when they hear a story they love, they, they grab a hold of it in such a way where it's almost they're fixated on those stories. Any of you have kids that maybe they're fixated on some sort of character or they have a favorite stuffed animal that's one of their, their favorite people in a story, whatever it is, and, and they just grab a, a hold of that. For, for us in my family, the first big thing that my kids really connected to was Cinderella. A Cinderella classic story. Here's a picture of one of the first Halloweens my kids had, so this I think was 2013. Scarlet, fortunately, got to be her favorite character, Cinderella. And Hudson, unfortunately, uh, had to be Gus Gus, which is not as, as good. But still, cute, right? And, and, and great story. You all know the story of Cinderella. This is a story of a poor girl who gets an invitation to go to the king's palace to meet the prince. And because of a series of sad events in her life, she has no dress to wear and is unable to go to the ball. And so just when you think that all hope is lost. Who swoops in but this fairy godmother who, who clothes Cinderella in this beautiful dress and, and Cinderella goes to the palace and she meets the prince and a bunch of other stuff happens and you know the very end of the story comes along where they're, they're, they're there together as husband and wife and they live happily ever after. What a wonderful story. And I, I'm assuming most of you have seen Cinderella or know of the story of Cinderella. If you haven't, you you need to get out more because it's a really common story. Read it or watch the movie. It's, it's great. But I was reminded this morning and this week about just the value of good stories. And one of the reasons that this was something that was prevalent in my mind and heart is because uh, I joined a number of other people in the church and we've been doing this Bible reading challenge. And this week we finally finished the Old Testament. And now we've moved into the New Testament. We're on a section where, we're, where the story's getting really good. We're in this kind of last major chapter where we're beginning to see the story come to a conclusion and reach its apex in Jesus. It's the story of the Messiah. And it's been an incredible journey. And the best part of reading through this story is that it's not a fairy tale. L let me just remind you, what we do up here every week is we don't take time to just tell a good story about some sort of fairy tale. No, we believe here at this church, we believe in God's word. We believe God's word is true. We believe it's authoritative. We believe that God's word was written by God. It was divinely inspired men under the Holy Spirit who recorded God's message and, and now it's been given to us. So these are the words of God that we read in the scriptures, which means it's authoritative and important and vital in our life that we grasp and understand and, and treasure this story. It's important not only for me, but for everyone. This is God's message. And so this morning, we're just going to take time, just it's a really simple kind of message, but just to remind ourselves of the story of God's word. And one of the ways that we're going to do that uh, and, and see this epic narrative unfold is we're going to do it through the lens of one of the major themes in the Bible. If you read through the Bible, you'll realize there's certain big themes that pop up, uh, things, themes like kingdom and other things like that. And one of the themes that's there, very prevalent, is the theme of righteousness. And this morning, we're going to look at the Bible through that lens. And in fact, we're going to, obviously, if you've been with us, you know we're going through a series in the book of Proverbs, talking about various uh, aspects or, 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 or sections of Proverbs that speak into everyday life or what are some of the major themes of, 
of Proverbs. And this morning, we're talking about righteousness. And we're not only looking at the Bible, we're going to briefly look in Proverbs because in the book of Proverbs, the word righteous or righteousness, it occurs at least in my Bible 87 times. As I was poring over all these different examples uh, over the week of, of, of when Proverbs is talking about righteousness or, or the word righteous, it was reminding me that this is a big concept. This is, in fact, one of the biggest themes in the whole book of Proverbs. So go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs this morning. We're going to look at the whole Bible, but we're going to also look in Proverbs, and we're going to see this theme, righteousness, played out over the course of the narrative of Scripture, very simply this morning. Turn to the book of Proverbs. Now, as I go through this message, normally I have a number of the Proverbs on the screen. What I'll do is I'll mention the chapter and some of the verses, and I'll be moving pretty quick later on. And so if you want to just put your thumb in there and check it out, that's where we'll be. Or you can just take my word for it that I'm actually reading from Scripture. But what I also want to say is, is if you have a Bible, or if you don't have a Bible with you, um, and you have a phone, you can download our app. We've got a Bible there. Or you can take one of the seatback Bibles in front of you. That's our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, take it, keep it. We want you to use it. We want you to read it. Um, but that's our gift to you, so feel free to look at that as well. And as we dive in here, I'm going to look at the first point right now as we kind of open up the story of the Bible. First of all, we're going to look at the principle of righteousness. The principle of righteousness. Now, in our Bibles, right in the very beginning of the story, we see God who who has created these people, and God exists in fellowship and relationship with these people, Adam and Eve. And in this very first chapter, God is walking with them and talking with them. They're in his presence, and things are going well. And the reason that people can be around God is because they have inherent righteousness. They have inherent righteousness. Now, righteousness can mean a number of different things. We don't usually use that word very much unless someone is old. Wasn't that a word? Sometimes people say, oh, righteous, that's awesome, right? I don't really hear people say that anymore. Normally, we don't use the word righteous very frequently, but it's all over the pages of Scripture. And in the Old Testament in particular, it's a very broad range. In fact, the word righteous, you can translate it righteous or just or justice or a number of other things. But primarily, there's two emphasis in the Old Testament and much of Scripture regarding righteousness. The first is that righteousness means right standing. Uh, This term right standing, it's frequently used in a legal sense. This is righteousness in the legal sense where someone is declared not guilty. So, for example, in a court of law, someone who is in right standing, they're not guilty, there's no penalty against them. Right? They're clear, they're free. There's no judgment of any kind, there's no debt that they have to pay, they're free to live this out. And so the Bible describes Adam and Eve, their condition before God, they're righteous. And their position before him, they have this right standing, they're sinless. And so when God sees them, he doesn't have any sin in the way, he sees their standing as the fact that they're guiltless, they're righteous. They're able to live in his presence in the Garden of Eden. They're able to enjoy fellowship with God. They're on good terms with God. So this is the first aspect of righteousness, right standing. Now, secondly, righteousness also means right behavior. And we see this a lot in the Bible. And it's sometimes important for us to discern the context of what they're talking about our position, our, our standing before God, or our standing, if, if it's upright, or is it our behavior, that it's ungodly. And so What we see often in scripture is that someone who is in good standing with God, they're encouraged to live accordingly. 
So what I mean by that is not only is righteousness a declaration of your standing before God, it's the fact that you're able to practice righteousness. You're able to be obedient to God's law. You live it out practically. This is righteousness. So let me just simply explain this. If I'm righteous, I can be with God. I'm free to be with him, experience his presence, his fellowship. I can be with God. However, the problem is, Adam and Eve, they couldn't practically live that out. Uh, Positionally, they were good with God. They were on good terms until sin entered the story. And then things kind of fell apart and started to change, and it wasn't so good. Their relationship was ruined. In fact, this is why it says in our Bibles that Adam and Eve, they were naked and ashamed. This wasn't the fact that just at, at that point in the story, finally they, they, their clothes fell off or something like that. No, they were always naked, but now they were exposed fully. Their sin was evident. You could see that. No longer were they clothed in righteousness. That clothing was stripped off, and they were laid bare to, see, see, to, to, to be seen as, as their unrighteous self. This is why they were naked and ashamed. And so the rest of the story we see that no longer are they able to be in the presence of God. They're not longer able to be in the presence of the king because they're unrighteous. And so through the rest of the Bible, we see in the Old Testament people trying to claw their way up to God, trying to do things to reach up to God. We see the Tower of Babel. They build their way up to God to make a name for themselves. And what happens? Well, he scatters them. No matter how hard man tries, he cannot attain righteousness based on his own merit. And so the whole Old Testament, it's a pretty sad story. If you've read through it, you're like, man, this is heavy. I mean, lots of messed up, sinful stuff going on because people are trying to follow God's commands and trying to live according to the way that God desires and they keep falling short. And so God has to clean up the mess by doing a number of things. Blood sacrifice is one and covenant is the other. And they're often connected. In fact, we see with Adam and Eve, what happens once they're naked and ashamed? God kills an animal. And he takes the animal skins and he covers their nakedness. So we see this principle play out, this principle of righteousness, and and people keep trying to reach God again and again and again, and and now it comes to the second point this morning, the product of righteousness. You may be going, okay, so we've lost righteousness, and, and, and because of sin, all mankind is now unrighteous. They're born in an unrighteous state. That doesn't sound so great. Well, no, I don't think you understand. If you feel like it's not that big of a deal, it's a really big deal. See, righteousness means that we can have fellowship and connection and relationship with God. And when we are unrighteous, when we're born into an unrighteous world in an unrighteous state, we cannot have fellowship or connection or, or do life with God in any way. We cannot be in his presence. And that means the worst possible things imaginable for us because righteousness is the only pursuit that we should have in life. Having a connection to God, having a relationship with God. And in the book of Proverbs, we see some of the benefits of righteousness play out. And this is where I mention, if you turn there, I'll I'll mention a few, but I'm going to go through quickly. I've got probably, I don't know, 20-some verses that I'm not going to read right now. You don't need to hear all this, but you'll get the point as I read a couple and I'll skip. Let's hear some of the fruit of righteousness, some of the benefits of righteousness in Proverbs. Why we need righteousness. First of all, it's a blessing in our lives. Proverbs 3.33 says, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 6, it says, blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 20, verse 7, says, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. So we see that righteousness produces blessing. 
Righteousness also produces life, eternal life. It says in Proverbs 12, in the path of, the, of righteousness is life, and its pathway there is no death. Proverbs 11 says, whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who, who pursues evil will die. We'll skip, get more verses, we'll skip it. Thirdly, righteousness brings knowledge. So Proverbs 9.9 9 says, give instruction to a wise man, and he'll be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Proverbs 10 says, the mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. Righteousness also produces security and safety. It says in Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Proverbs 13, Righteousness guards him whose way is blameless, but sin overthrows the wicked. Proverbs 12, The wicked are overthrown and are, are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Righteousness also produces joy. Proverbs 10 says, The hope of the righteousness of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Proverbs 13 says, The light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. You, you get the point. Righteousness produces good things in our lives. In fact, righteousness even produces this. You may not think this is a good thing. I enjoy the fact that this is one of the, the fruits of righteousness. Uh, righteousness also produces gray hair. Uh, it says in Proverbs sixteen thirty one, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. So I must be a pretty righteous dude because I am prematurely going gray. And uh, at one point I thought it was actually like a good, you know, the salt and pepper thing is kind of distinguished, but I have way too much salt happening. I need more of my pepper back, and it's, anyways, not so cool anymore. But these are the fruits of righteousness. Righteousness produces all these incredible things in our lives. And apart from righteousness, true joy, a true wisdom, true knowledge, true life, true blessing, true security, those things are out the window. In our natural condition before God, our natural state, we have nothing. You and I desperately need righteousness. And the problem is, if we try really, really hard to be good people, try really, really hard to muster enough effort and strength to, to maybe manufacture a little of our own righteousness, we always fall short. All these silly people in the Old Testament that we like to make fun of and... What a terrible decision that was. I would never do this. Yeah, you can just write your name right in your Bible. Anytime you see someone screw up, it's probably talking about you and me. We all mess up. We're unable to enter God's presence based on our unrighteous state. We are naked and ashamed before God. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So we're in desperate need of righteousness because without righteousness we can never stand before the king. This is bad news. We don't receive the, the blessings or benefits of righteousness. But see, this is where the story gets pretty good, pretty interesting. Number three, the person of righteousness. And we read through the story of all these screwed up people and then pretty, pretty soon we get to this apex, the hero part of the story. A hero enters into the picture. And I always say this, newsflash, a lot of people when they interpret scripture, they try to place themselves into the hero of the story. I mentioned this with the story of David and Goliath. It's always, hey, I'm going to conquer my own giants. That's not, you're not the hero. You're not David. We're never the David. No, the hero of the story is Jesus. The reality is you and I are still clothed 
We're actually stripped bare of our righteousness. So, so we're naked and ashamed. We're not clothed in unrighteousness. We have nothing on. We're, we're exposed. We can't be the hero, but God the Father, knowing our insufficiencies, knowing our failures, knowing that you and I messed up probably more times this morning than we care to admit. Snapping at the kids, getting in an argument with somebody, lying, whatever we did this morning. You and I are failures, but see, God the Father, knowing this, sent his son Jesus to deliver us from our failure, from our sin, and from our our unrighteousness. Jesus is perfectly holy, he's perfectly just, and he's perfectly righteous in every way imaginable. He's guiltless, sinless, completely righteous. In fact, in 1 John 2.1, Jesus is referred to as the righteous one. Jesus is the person of righteousness, not us. Jesus is the person. And according to the Bible, this righteous one was crucified for the unrighteous. The only man who walked the face of the earth completely blameless was crucified for me and you, a bunch of mess-ups. And Jesus was placed upon a large wooden cross that he had to carry and raised up and beaten and mocked and scourged and died one of the most brutal deaths you can possibly imagine. Bleeding, broken, gasping for air. And after yielding up his spirit in death, Jesus was placed in a tomb and scriptures, the scriptures go on to declare that he was there for a few days and on the third day, Jesus conquered death Itself, and he was raised from the dead and glorified in perfection. And Jesus is the righteous one who radiates perfect righteousness today. And not only did he rise from the dead, but scripture says he ascended on high. In fact, he went straight into the presence of God. How did he go to the presence of God? He was completely righteous. Because only the righteous can enter into the presence of God. Only the righteous can enter into the presence of the king. He goes straight into the presence of God where he takes up his royal throne next to his father. And he's in the throne room today. And he's reigning as the prince of peace. Prince of peace. Jesus is the person of righteousness. And the story gets it just a little bit better too. Number four, the provision of righteousness. You see, if you read your Bible carefully, the Bible gives hints as to how unrighteous people can be made righteous. And I'll give you the hint right here. It's through faith. When we get to the story of Abraham, Abraham has this amazing promise, and you'd think this is the most unlikely thing that could ever come true, and Abraham believes God. And what does the scripture say about Abraham's faith in God? It says this in Genesis 15, verse 6. The scriptures declare that he, Abraham, believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. See, through faith in God, Abraham is declared righteous. In fact, in in the Minor Prophets, in Habakkuk 2.4, it says this, The righteous shall live by his faith. 
We see this pattern continue to play out until we get to the final conclusion of this story of Jesus and what he's done. And finally, Scripture reveals to us that we unrighteous people, we can finally have access to the Father. We can finally have access to the King, not by manufacturing our own righteousness, but through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is given to us the moment we believe. The moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. It is given to us. And we have a new standing before God. We have a standing that's rooted in Jesus. We can now approach the king, not based on our own deeds, but on the deeds of Jesus on our behalf. We can stand before the king because the righteousness of Christ has clothed us. We no longer stand naked in the shame. We're clothed with Christ. Notice what Paul says in Romans 3, 21 through 22. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, which we talked about. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. So beloved, listen up. We unrighteous people, we have hope in the gospel. We have hope in Jesus Christ that he, the righteous one, offered the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, his very life, dying in our place, a sacrifice that's connected with a greater covenant, and that through faith in Jesus Christ, we no longer stand before God in shame and in our sin. We stand before him through faith in Jesus with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So here's our big idea this morning. We have access to the king through faith in the one who clothes us in his perfect righteousness. We have access to the king through faith in the one who clothes us in his perfect righteousness. And let me just tell you, if this story doesn't get you excited, I know for some of you, you heard me say this story a lot, or you've heard this story in Sunday school your whole life, and it kind of gets old. My hope and my prayer is the gospel never gets old. It's the greatest story ever told. It's a true story, and it's the greatest true story ever told. And if it's helpful, you can think of it in fairy tale terms because it's that incredible. In fact, this is a Cinderella story, so let me try to lay this out for you. We are Cinderella, okay? We're poor, pitiful people who miraculously receive an invitation to go to the king's palace to meet the prince, but because of a series of sad events, we're unable to enter his presence because we're clothed. In fact, we're stripped of our garments of, of righteousness. We're naked and ashamed. And just when we think all hope is lost, the stinking fairy godmother does not, does not show up in the story. The prince himself leaves the throne room, lays down his life in order to clothe us himself with his own righteousness so we now can go to the ball, we can go to the palace, and we can meet the prince and be with him forever. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The best part of the story is at the very end, the bride and the groom, they're joined together and they live happily ever after. It's the story of the Bible. It's the greatest story ever told. There's no greater story. And for those of you who've never experienced this Cinderella story in your life, I want to encourage you, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. 
There's a song we sometimes sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Don't trust in your own goodness, your own righteousness. Trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you. Trust in Jesus alone for salvation. It says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If you don't know Jesus Christ, let me just tell you, you can scrape and claw your way to try to be a good person or to try to reach up to God, but you're going to be a failure every time. The good news is Jesus never fails. He is the perfect, righteous one who gave up his life for us. And this morning, we're going to celebrate his death, his burial, and remember his resurrection. And we're going to do this together through something that we participate in regularly called communion or the Lord's Supper. And so let me just encourage you this morning, if you've been transformed, if you've been that Cinderella who was not able to enter the presence of the king, but through the work of the prince on your behalf, have now come into a righteousness that's not your own and now have access to the king. If that's you, if by faith you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to participate with us in communion. This is an opportunity for us as believers to remember Jesus and what he's done for us, to meditate on his sufferings and on his sacrifice. We do this as we partake in the bread, which is scripture reveals to us is his body, which is broken for us. And we participate in the cup, which is that picture of the new covenant in his blood as he shed his blood and and poured out his blood for the remission of sins. This is what we engage in with communion. We remember Jesus. We remember the gospel. We taste the gospel. We touch the gospel. We smell it. This is what we do, and so we encourage you to take part with us in communion this morning. To remember Jesus and all that he's done. And scripture is very clear that the first thing we do is we examine ourselves. It's important for us to not come into this process of participating in communion in an unworthy manner. Meaning we shouldn't take this lightly or flippantly. We shouldn't just be screaming at our, our neighbor or, or, or cursing out our wife and seconds later say, oh, that's okay, let's just go ahead and participate in communion. No, if, if there's fellowship things you need to deal with, you need to be reconciled with somebody, we encourage you to do that. And then come to the table. If right now there's something with you and God and and there's some unconfessed sin that you need to deal with, take that time to do that. We, We don't encourage everyone to get up and participate. Now, I'm also not saying that you need to be perfect, right? Because we all have our junk. But the reality is we take time, examine ourselves. If there's someone that we can be reconciled with, we pursue that. And we take this time primarily to remember Jesus. Remember all that he's done. And so once you've taken time to examine yourself and to meditate on the gospel and what Jesus has done, we're going to encourage you to stand up and to go to one of the four corners of the worship center to grab the bread, the cup, to return to your seats. And we're all going to participate in communion together as one family in Christ. So let's take that time now. Remember Jesus. Examine ourselves. Remember him.